0: I'm Duncan McLeod and this is TCS Plus, the business technology show from Tech Central. My next guest today, Joseph Byrne, is in the UK. He works for a company called OneTrust, where he is Principal Solutions Engineer. OneTrust are experts in privacy and security. The company was founded in 2016 by Kabir Bardet. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Joseph. It's a privately held uh, company and has more than 12,000 customers around the world, including here in South Africa.
1: Joe, good to see you. Welcome to Tech Central. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, great to be here, Duncan. I'm happy to be having this discussion with you today.
0: All right, Joseph. So as a scene setter, perhaps to get the conversation started, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about OneTrust, why the company was founded and what it offers in the marketplace.
1: Uh, certainly, so one trust was founded primarily around um, the GDPR standard which came into effect in in two thousand and eighteen so uh, Kabir realized that organizations would need a, a tool or a solution or a platform to be able to meet their their compliance obligations under gdpr and that 's really why um, they started to build. Uh, the platform then since then it's it's evolved so we covered the primarily the privacy bases then we moved also into security and governance and we have some very new interesting offerings on ai governance as well but it really about empowering um, organizations to become compliant, but not only become compliant, to get value out of that uh, that data and that work. Mm-hmm. Um, becoming privacy compliant takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And if you can get more value out of that, like understanding the risks your processing activities uh, present to you and having uh, the ability to mitigate and control those risks, that's also uh, very positive as well. So that's what it was was founded really to do. Um, the value you get out of it also is that um, we have this concept of trust intelligence. Now, the way I describe trust intelligence is I call it joined-up thinking. So, your privacy, your security, your governance teams, and all of your processes will have common data, and trust intelligence sort of bridges the gap between that data, so you get an overall view of your uh, of, of your compliance, and you're able to manage that more effectively. Okay.
0: You've done some work in the South African context as well. Um, I, I don't know if you can name any clients, but um, perhaps if you can't, perhaps you could give us some insight into some of the work you've done in the South African market and some of the projects you've been involved with here.
1: Oh yes, certainly. So there's the two elements really to discuss. There, we've been involved in several privacy events in South Africa, and we frequently send uh, event teams out there to talk about uh, privacy and governance in the space. And we've also worked on the the privacy, uh, the South African uh, privacy law. So we're helping um, organisations in South Africa become compliant um, with that and get those data or that data in order. But also, there'll be many South African um, organisations that are international that have interests in Europe and the US and will, as a result, have to respect the privacy legislation there for those data subjects. So we've helped them also become um, compliant Mm -hmm. with the uh, the laws perhaps beyond the South African borders.
0: Okay, okay. And uh, that that law in South Africa, of course, is the Protection of Personal Information Act, or papaya. Um, And uh, South African entities are also quite um, heavily influenced or affected by GDPR. And we're going to get into that in some more detail a bit later in this conversation. But I wanted to talk a little bit, we're going to be talking today, uh, Joseph, about um, third-party risk management and privacy risk. What's the difference between the two types of risk, first of all?
1: Um, so, firstly, a privacy risk is a risk more concerned with your privacy program and becoming compliant or remaining compliant with the privacy laws, um, so that you don't suffer perhaps um, being interrogated by a supervisory authority, being fined by a supervisory authority, and the, the subsequent reputational damage um, that uh, that occurs as a result. Um, a third-party risk is more. sort of nuanced, more focused. It's focusing on the risk a third party that's processing personal data on your behalf presents to you. Now, there's a couple of things to be mindful of when you consider third parties. Um, The first one is, Despite them being a processor and taking some responsibility for that data, you are ultimately accountable uh, for any mistakes or problems they make. Even if you've got contractual clauses uh, written into the arrangements you have um, with that third party, should it go wrong, you're, you're accountable and ultimately your reputation uh, will, be, uh, will be damaged. If you've noticed any um, um, uh, privacy incidents or, or Breach is being reported in the news, it typically isn't mentioned whether it was the result of a third party because the media generally don't, don't care about that so much. And mm. the second thing to be mindful of is it's your responsibility as a controller to ensure that the third party is protecting the data uh, appropriately for you or to the standards you need uh, for your compliance. And that goes slightly deeper because um, when you initiate the relationship with a third party, everything may be in order. But as the relationship proceeds, maybe the their um, frameworks will lapse or perhaps they may be acquired by a company that has less of a privacy focus or, or any other number of things can happen. That would mean the data is no longer protected adequately. And you as the uh, as the controller have to monitor that and make sure um, that throughout the, the duration of the relationship, it's maintained. And then should it not be maintained, you also need to consider that perhaps you need to offboard that vendor as well. Not a popular sort of thing to consider, but that may ultimately be the, uh, the outcome. So the, the main difference is sort of privacy risk is across your broader privacy program. Third party risk is more nuanced on the uh, processes that are processing personal data on your behalf.
0: Actually, uh, managing third parties in this way must be an incredibly uh, complicated and complex thing to do. And I guess that's where companies like OneTrust come in. You know this field backwards. Um, But perhaps I can ask you this. Uh, How can organizations evaluate and select third party service providers and tools to minimize privacy risks? How, How should they go about assessing their options and
1: rating the companies that they are considering contracting with to do this? Considering working with absolutely well, it, it comes down to doing your due diligence and there's a couple of ways you can, you can approach that and a couple of tools you can use. Um, the most simple one that most organizations use is uh, perhaps a spreadsheet, which is a start, but it is it is fairly limited. The challenges you have with a spreadsheet is it's very difficult to report on. It's very difficult to perhaps monitor risk. And what we tend to see is whoever built it knows how it works. And if they ever leave the organization, um, then whoever has to pick that up has some big challenges. And The advantage of using um, a tool um, such as OneTrust to evaluate third-party risk is that it manages the process. So it manages the onboarding of those, uh, those third parties. and We can do initial assessments to determine whether they're suitable at all and the initial risk um, that they present. We can capture any certifications they have and whether they are up to date and when they're due to um, expire. And then we can do additional due diligence assessments to evaluate. risk they present to us. But more more useful than that, as the relationship progresses, we can monitor um, that third party. We can reassess them periodically if necessary. We can put rules in place to uh, bring to our attention if things have gone out of tolerance. And we can also flag when any certifications have expired. So not only is it the case that we can um, facilitate onboarding, we can also facilitate monitoring. And then at a later point in time, um, should the relationship come to an end, we can facilitate offboarding. So, when you um, perhaps terminate your relationship with a third party vendor, you have obligations as to the data they've been processing. So, we can put um, measures in place to ensure um, that uh, retention policies have been enforced and perhaps any data that they did have has been uh, destroyed or removed.
0: Mm. Okay. I can see uh, how artificial intelligence software could potentially play a role here. And I want to maybe ch- chat to you a bit about that a bit later in our discussion. But another area of, of complexity for organizations is the fact that there are so many pieces of legislation and regulation around the world uh, that it, it's um, companies, including companies right here at the southern tip of Africa, are finding themselves having to comply with legislation that's being introduced in specific U.S. states, for example, uh, if they mm-hmm. happen to do business there. Um there's the GDPR, the, the big one in Europe, of course, there's Papaya here. There, there are other other data protection frameworks out there like NIST, for example. Which are the ones organizations should be paying attention to and why? Um, that is
1: a good question. Um, it depends on a couple of scenarios. So you can take two approaches. Um the first approach is to evaluate the markets or the regions you work in and who your main data subjects are. Um, determine the legislation that comes across or that is required in each of those regions, and then just pick the strictest one mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 adhere to that um, wow. and that 's a good approach to sort of cover the majority of your uh, of your bases. The the second approach is to focus on the primary market you're in and your primary data subjects and and pick up that piece of legislation. So if you were focused primarily in Europe, perhaps you would then focus on on, on GDPR or South Africa, the South African regulation. But mm-hmm. what I, I would say to be mindful of is that um, your, your your approach to this depends on the resourcing you have in your team. So if your team is very well resourced and from my understanding in privacy that's that's quite rare then perhaps you can adopt fully adopt several pieces of legislation like uh, a CCPA GDPR um, and so on if your team is slightly less resourced then you need to focus on perhaps one of those legislations and then take a risk based approach to the outliers so things that you May not be able to get one hundred percent compliant with mm-hmm. take a measured approach as to whether you, you you can tolerate that in the sort of medium or long term or even if there's parts of the legislation that are less sort of relevant um, and to your uh, to your business but yeah, um, I would say either pick the strictest. Or take a, an informed decision as to which one is best for you based on the majority of your data subjects. And then the things you can't do, perhaps because you're not, uh, you don't have the resources, take a risk-based approach to tolerating those.
0: Interesting. Out of interest, um, we, we hear a lot about GDPR and the European protection, and of course here in South Africa, Papaya and, and some other jurisdictions around the world. We don't hear so much about the United States. Uh, do they have a federal law like GDPR? Is there one in development?
1: Um, So that is a really topical question. And I've been involved in this quite heavily recently because I've been studying for my IPPC, IPP US certification. And um, uh, what became immediately obvious to me when I started studying um, for that, as opposed to the one I did in Europe, is that there's many laws. In, in Europe, the the European set was just GDPR. And in, in the US, it's, it's uh, like there's loads. So okay. there's a few things to consider. We have um, federal laws and state laws. And some federal laws preempt state laws. So states may not necessarily be able to implement a stricter law. And then in other scenarios, there are federal laws that don't preempt state laws. So a state can then introduce its own law that is stricter than the federal guidance. The situation at the moment in the U.S. is it's very much piecemeal. Um, there are some standards, um, such as um, HIPAA, which is, is 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 national, but others are simply done on a state by state basis. And more and more states are introducing legislation um, one by one. Um California is pretty much the trendsetter. They are ahead. They are perhaps the most progressive. And others now, like uh, recently, a law was introduced in Colorado, uh, are sort of catching up, but. There's not a great deal of, of uniformity. All of the uh, states are, are, um, are giving people similar rights, but there's no sort of umbrella um, law. Now, in terms of when or if that will come, um, I actually brought this up um, last year at IPP in Brussels. So we had a um, an expert panel of uh, individuals from uh, from the US uh, talking about US privacy law, and I, I sort of asked the question. Um, do you foresee a, a federal law coming? And uh, if so, which? What's, what's the sort of timeline? And they were quite reticent to d- discuss any sort of timeline. They effectively said that it may be coming, but organizations can't wait for it. They need to observe state law first. Um, in terms of my feeling, I think Maybe the remainder of the states will implement their own laws before a federal law—a federal law comes. And um, we do think it is coming, but um, I don't think it will be—it will be soon. And maybe then some of the federal laws will preempt state laws, and after they'll have to change those from there. But at the moment, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a, I would say, a challenging environment because. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no, there's no consistent standard. And every couple of months, a new, new state introduces uh, some, some additional legislation. And certainly, if you're studying for that exam, that makes it a, makes it a very challenging mm-hmm. exam.
0: I'd like to explore, explore this third-party risk thing in a little bit more detail now, um, and just maybe to get some insight into how it works practically. Um, you're a corporate entity. Now you're trying to tell another corporate entity, for example, you need to behave in this way, uh, to, 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 because of the risks associated with this and for our compliance with GDPR or whatever it happens to be. But that must be a very difficult conversation to have. Um, you can't tell another company to necessarily do something. Um, what, 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 what are the conversations like in, in when, when, when they come up and have to come up around this? Uh, what advice would you, would just one trust give to its clients? to have those conversations and and to have outcomes that are satisfactory.
1: Well, you're right it is a it is a challenging conversation to have and it's really a balance of of, of benefits really so you're contracting a third party um, they're going to receive a benefit from that that contract it needs to be i suppose worth their while but where the challenges exist we found is mainly with um, with larger multinational uh, companies that you may be wishing to uh, to engage with in business because a, a smaller provider may be more keen to have your business and will Jump through the hoops, or fill out those assessments, and, and take steps to be aligned to you. A larger, maybe multinational, may not even respond to your uh, to your assessment. So. In terms of how we can deal with that, um, we have a tool in OneTrust called Exchange where we engage with these larger organizations and do the due diligence on behalf of our, our clients. So rather than them engaging them individually, um, they can work with that and observe uh, the, the current assessments, the current um, certifications those organiz- organizations have without having to, um, to engage them directly. And it, it's kind of mutually beneficial because the larger corporate then doesn't have have to engage directly with maybe fifty hundred maybe a thousand organizations to prove they 've done their due diligence, and the organizations that are that are working or receiving that service get a, a huge view of uh, of vendors um, and um, can view their their sort of compliance all all at once so you're right, it is difficult, but that's one one option for large corporate. The second thing is I ought to mention is um, usability of assessments um Ultimately, you're going to want your third party to complete a risk assessment for you. Uh, privacy risk assessment, and if you make that process very difficult, they are less likely to do it, and they 're less likely to do it uh, to do it well. so the way we can facilitate that is by providing uh, dynamic assessments that adjust as they 're being completed, so that um, the person responding only has to uh, respond to the questions that are relevant mm-hmm. to them, and we can also build things into it to guide them as to how to answer those questions but where it becomes even more valuable is the point we have to reassess. So in six months or 12 months' time, if we need to reassess that vendor, we can send them the same assessment with the majority of it completed because they did that the previous year, and then they can just work on this sort of deltas or the changes. If every year you're sending them a blank assessment, you're just going to get, well, probably lack of response or or a poor response as well. So I think addressing those conversations, if you can make it easier for that vendor – then you're well on your way. But equally, if it's a large vendor, using a tool such as our exchange can help you get around the uh, the issues of them perhaps pushing back.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this, I mean, I imagine a lot of um, third parties are going to treat this as a uh, box ticking exercise. Is that okay that you, you tick a bunch of boxes and say, okay, we've complied with all these things, or does there need to be some more of a sort of a spirit of cooperation and an understanding of why you're doing this behind it for it to be successful?
1: Well, um unfortunately, some vendors or third parties will um, treat it as a as a tick box um, exercise and just maybe try and fill it in as quickly as possible to get mm. things uh, on the go but um if you 're um, a privacy focused um, privacy by design company, when that comes back to you you 'll observe straight away that it's it 's not good enough and you 'll ask them to evidence uh, evidence things. I think a collaborative approach is much better absolutely, and to be fair. An organization's first attempt may be um, unacceptable or maybe not to the standard you require, but if you can work with them and help them fill in the gaps and tell them what you're expecting of them. And with our assessments, you can also write detailed feedback on each of the questions that's perhaps um, um, lacking, then you're you're more likely to get a positive response. But certainly a collaborative approach is better. But just recognize that it is a task. It is is work. Um, We can make it easier with by improving the user experience, but it requires some time and some energy to uh, to get it right and some resource as well.
0: Once you've done the initial legwork though, and, um, and and you're comfortable with the position that you're in,
1: what is the scope for automating these processes? Oh, absolutely. So um, there's a couple of options we can use um, to do that. So within OneTrust, we have um, a function called automation rules. So in automation rules, you specify a scenario or a group of scenarios across your um, list of third parties. Um, and then the software watches the data for you. So, if something happens or something changes or something goes out of tolerance it will it will bring it to your attention so, for example, um, if an organization had a certification that was about to expire, um, you could kick off an assessment to try and Ask of them um, what they're doing to to rectify that, or if their um, their current risk uh, posture has gone too high, uh, you can alert a member of the team to go and investigate this, and you can also set your um, assessments on a recurring cadence, perhaps mm-hmm. um, annually. So rather than someone having to remember to engage um, that uh, that third party, those things can be uh, can be kicked off automatically, and indeed as I say, if it comes to a point in time where um, the relationship is no longer useful or there's no um, scope for them to become more compliant or or to maintain their compliance, we can kick off a process to uh, to offboard them as well.
0: Okay. Okay. So Joseph, um, even with the best risk mitigation processes and plans in place, things can and do still go wrong. When that happens and companies have Engaged with a company like One Trust and gone through um, these various risk mitigation processes and they've got them in place, yet they still something still happens and client data, for example, is compromised. Do the authorities then look at that incident, look at how that organization has actually tried to protect customer data and say, actually, you guys did do a good job here, and therefore we're not really going we're not gonna fine you or we're gonna impose a fine that's much less than we would have otherwise. Do you have practical examples of how the regulators actually look upon companies that have gone through the processes we're talking about here today? And are those companies less likely to, to face big fines from from regulators in Europe or elsewhere?
1: Um, that's an interesting scenario, and it's, it's absolutely true. Um, if you can demonstrate that you've done your due diligence, the supervisory authorities are more likely to be uh, to be lenient um, to be lenient on you, um, and. Particularly with incidents and breaches, um, I think um, organis- well, <clears throat> supervisory authorities um, recognize that incidents are inevitable and sometimes breaches are inevitable as well. And it can come down to something as simple as uh, a human error. In fact, one of the um, other exams I've done, the privacy technologist exam, um, there's um, some theory in, in the uh, study materials for that about um, – Taking measures to protect data, but one of the measures that's very difficult to control is the human factor. So someone may be maliciously or intentionally or maybe, um, um, because they weren't thinking compromising, uh, compromising that data. So. Some you can control as much as you can, but certain things um, are, are slightly beyond control. But if you can demonstrate to a supervisory authority that you've done everything within your power to protect mm-hmm. that data and you've educated your workforce, when they come to investigate you, it's, it's more, much more likely that they will be, be lenient um, on you. And a sort of example I can give, it's not really related to, um, and um, third party, but it's related to this concept of uh, supervisory authorities following up and viewing the, the airline, um, uh, so they're a European airline. They had a non-compliant um, cookie approach and the supervisory authority um, investigated them and they promptly, Vueling promptly fixed it. And um, so implemented a correct approach compliant with GDPR. And as a result, the supervisory authority was a lot more lenient um, on them. So yes, absolutely. If you can demonstrate that you've done everything within your power, um, then should the worst happen, and it is sometimes inevitable that things will go wrong, um, you're more likely to uh, to have a positive outcome with the supervisory authority.
0: Out of interest, where, where do these projects typically sit inside organizations? Are they the responsibility of the chief information security officer, or do they typically sit elsewhere in the organization?
1: Um, so, it, it depends. Um, a slightly more mature organization will have a privacy team and a, and a DPO, and they will typically Um, govern this and then work alongside with security and maybe slightly uh, less mature organization. This may sit in the remit of, of security and maybe perhaps broadly under the CISO, or it may also be, yeah, the responsibility of the, the CISO. There's an interesting concept in, in, in privacy. Um, well, in all industry, it's of being voluntold. Um, so this is when, um, responsibilities are, are given to you, but you don't really have a choice. And in, In many organizations, the person responsible for privacy uh, may have had some privacy experience but not a great deal. The organization needed someone and they were voluntold. So then this sits under under their remit, perhaps, in the the privacy team or across security. But primarily, we would see this um, across the privacy team.
0: Okay. Okay. I mentioned earlier I want to chat about artificial intelligence. Um, It's been the big story in tech in 2023 and probably will be again in 2024 what role could AI potentially play in privacy risk management? And is the technology mature enough yet to be genuinely useful?
1: Um, So it's coming along and there's certainly scope for that, especially on the the monitoring side. Um, uh, So you could potentially use an an AI model to monitor all of your, your vendors and the changes they have, and maybe even adverse media and that they're seeing in the press to inform uh to inform your team as to whether there's any problems or challenges there and whether it's there yet i'm i don't think it's quite quite there yet i think the experience i've had with uh with ai and um the organizations I've spoken to, they're all very excited to use it. They have a couple of use cases they're, uh, they're confident with, but outside of that, they're not really sure. They know it's going to be useful, uh, but they don't know exactly, exactly what to do with it. Or they've empowered their teams to start experimenting with some of the tools that are out there, but have given them some guidelines as not to use sensitive data, not to use personal data, and not to use it for decision-making, which I, I suppose in the privacy, uh, the privacy section is... Uh, prominent things you would you would want to do. I think yeah. it's going to bring a lot of value. I think it's it's not quite there yet, but I think we also need to be mindful that we don't get ahead of ourselves and start doing a lot of things and then try and retrospectively govern it all.
0: Right, right. So we need some standards and possibly some rules and regulations around this. Is there work happening in that regard yet?
1: Oh, certainly. So there's um, um, emerging legislation in, in Europe and also in, in the US, I mean, Washington, um, too, um, that's providing some guidelines around um, AI and AI governance. But I would suggest organizations try uh, in this sort of interim period to self-govern. So with respect to AI, really, we are in the, the Wild West at the moment. And uh, I had this conversation. It was at an event I was at in Amsterdam recently with a, an AI expert panel. Again, love to ask a question. In fact, it's company policy to ask questions, so we always ask questions. Um, but um, I asked them, um, are we approaching the Wild West or are we in it? And they said, we are definitely in it at the moment because we've a ton of capability that is, is pretty much unregulated. So I would suggest organizations – look at how they intend to approach AI and then ask some tough questions like ask, mm-hmm. should we be doing this? Or if the population found out uh, we were doing this, would they find it abhorrent? And then use that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly use, the, use that to guide your, uh, guide your use before um, perhaps the legislation comes. Equally, right. if you spent a, ty- a lot of time and energy developing those models and suddenly you can't use them legally, uh, that would be a lot of wasted effort too.
0: Yeah. yeah. Is is OneTrust uh, as a matter of interest doing, developing any tools, software
1: tools in the AI space at this stage? Um, so the prominent tool we have is called um, Artificial Intelligence Governance. So this tool okay. is intended to give organizations a view of the data sets, um, the models, and the projects uh, that they're carrying out with respect to uh, to AI. So the data sets inform the model, so the, the data is used to train the model, and then one or more models can be used across a project. And these sort of thinking behind this or the ethos of this module is to figure out and determine what you're doing and before you what you intend to do uh, before you actually start start doing it so what is the intent of your project what is the purpose of it and what do you intend to do and then consider the models and the data now beyond that there's also some really neat things we can do with uh, OneTrust that are going to inform your AI. So we have a module called Data Discovery, which will tell you um, about the data set you might be intending to use. So it will identify any sensitive data or any personal data or things that you perhaps shouldn't be using um, in a data set that you're going to use to inform uh, an AI model. And we can also enforce what we call um, um, uh, data policies. So... Mm-hmm we can point the tool at your data sources and see if it can detect any use of AI or any AI type files in there. Um, So if the team are, or maybe members of the team have gone and decided to do their own initiative, we can get some visibility of that too.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Joseph, finally, uh, considering everything we've spoken about in this uh, discussion today and and around third-party risk management, um, what are the one or two most prominent takeaway points that you'd like to share with our audience before we call it a wrap today?
1: Absolutely. Well, the main thing is to do your due diligence. And whether you're using a spreadsheet or documents or you're using a a software solution like we have, and before you initiate that uh, processing activity with that uh, third party, make sure that you're comfortable that they have... um, Measures in place to protect the data and the relevant uh, frameworks and certifications too. And then, don't just call it a day at that. Make sure at regular intervals, maybe six months or annually, you reassess that uh, that third party to ensure they're maintaining um, the privacy and security standards you require. Because ultimately, it's going to land on your desk if uh, if things go uh, if things go wrong. So that's that was probably the prominent thing I would say. And certainly consider using uh, tools to help for. Facilitate this because you can get the value of that reporting and the value of the uh, risk visibility as well. You can get a lot more out of the work you've put in um, if you consider a software solution like OneTrust.
0: Fascinating insights. If uh, anyone wants to learn more about OneTrust, the website's OneTrust.com, is that right?
1: That's correct, yes. Yeah. There yeah
0: we go. Yeah. OneTrust.com is a website to check out. Joseph Byrne is Principal Solutions Engineer at OneTrust. Uh, Joseph, thanks for a fascinating discussion and thanks for your time this afternoon.
1: Excellent. Great to speak to you, Duncan. Great to be here.